Be prepared so you can just have that personal relationship when it becomes so important to you. I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. I also lead a caregiver support group in my local community. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we're going to focus on the caregiver. We're going to offer our practical insights and share some emotional support. Maybe we'll even share a few laughs along the way because we all know that laughing is, in fact, the best medicine. Don't forget the wine, Mike. Now, you know I never forget the wine. (laughs) You know, we've talked in the past about powers of attorney and money management for people with dementia. Now, we were fortunate that your dad was insistent that we have power of attorney as soon as he came to live with us. And, you know... His money management was much easier because of that. Right. And I remember he was so very insistent and very insistent because when uh, my grandmother passed away, he had a heck of a time. It took nine, 10 months for him to get everything reconciled before he could even get the life insurance um, deposited into her account so that he could, in fact, pay the um undertaker for the for the burial services so he was very insistent when he came to stay with us that we had to get that done absolutely and that brings us to today's guest who took care of her parents finances when they were diagnosed with dementia and that experience led her to pursue a passion of helping other families prepare for financial aspects of caregiving she has an award-winning blog called Dealing with Dementia and is the founder of Memory Bank, which is a money management business and the author of the best-selling book, Memory Bank, Your Workbook for Organizing Your Life. We are very pleased to welcome Kay Bransford. Kay, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. What I'd like to talk about first is your parents' dementia. Did they both have the same type of dementia? So they did not both have the same type of dementia. Um, My dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's And my mom had a stroke and was diagnosed with vascular dementia after what ended up being her second stroke. Were they both uh, diagnosed or in the midst of dementia at the same time or is one after the other or? Um, Yes, I think I was uniquely blessed with the fact that they were both walking into dementia at the same time, which made a lot more complicated because they knew something wrong was wrong with their spouse and their partner but they never recognized that anything was wrong with themselves. And we actually talked about that a little bit when we were talking to somebody about, you know, going into a trial and whether or not both spouses would be in the trial at the same time, where I might think I was fine and my husband might think that I was not in in that whole uh, conversation and how difficult that could make things. I have to wonder how you handled with both, both of that happening at the same time. Right. Oh, it, it was really difficult because um, one, they thought they were fine. So why did we need anyone's help? So I can do it even if, you know, my husband can't or my wife can't. Um, it took some time in building some trust for them to start letting help in because they thought they were doing okay. And the one thing I do want to share, and I don't know if you've already discussed anexognosia before, 
But I wish I had known that very early on in the journey because um, most people helping someone with dementia don't realize that they can't understand or see the things that are wrong with their thinking or behavior. And anosognosia is the medical term that is that whole describing that, that phenomena of people just, they don't recognize it. So you think someone's being stubborn or it's a pattern of familiar behavior, but it's not really, they just don't know that their thinking or behavior is off. I had not heard that term before, but I've definitely experienced it. (laughs) (laughs) Now we were kind of fortunate that my dad lived with us and he had money coming in from his retirement and his VA. And the only things I had to manage was his life insurance policy. And of course you set that up on an automatic payment and that's done. And his personal needs, his personal medical needs, where we had to get um, thickened fluids for him and things of that sort. So the day-to-day money management, we didn't have, but what you do takes does the day-to-day management of basically paying the bills for somebody not living with you. Is that correct? Correct. That's mostly, uh, most of our clients side by side. Um, so, it, and that's what's interesting is the different types of families that we work with. Um, sometimes it's hard for the person to accept help, but usually there might not be a child that lives nearby. So one of the things that I learned in, in supporting my parents is, you know, people take great pride in managing their own checkbook. Um, it's also a generational thing as they wanted to, that's meaning and purpose. So we go in and we sit side by side with the individual. And we just, we help support them a little bit, give them a little guidance. Here's how we might set this up. Let's make this easier. Um, For many individuals that we work with right now, they don't use email or don't have a computer. And as most of us that are probably listening to this podcast know, without a computer and an email address, there are a lot of things that you can't do. Um, Government services, your insurance, they're all pushing you online. So a lot of the things that we do is just the practical help of, managing day-to-day finances for someone that doesn't use a computer or have an iPhone. It's not part of their behavior. So you're actually physically present with them? Is that what I think I heard you say? So yes, we, I mean, our goal is to be, to sit side by side and hip to hip. Um, COVID has taken us in a different direction. So many of our clients were doing it either virtually and having phone calls, but our goal is to, you know, be an in-person support to them. So that's the majority of our clients is participatory support in paying the bills. Now, um, one of the things that I do as far as outreach goes is try to connect with um, working age adults and convince them what they need to do to prepare to care. And what you're doing is exactly part of that. And I have to ask, how are you reaching those people? Because while I have some success with it, not nearly as much as I would like to for, for for some reason, they seem to think this is years and years away, not understanding that if they're in their mid-30s or 40s, that in the 10 to 15 years, it's not necessarily just going to be their parents. It could be their spouse. It could be their brothers and sisters. And they should be preparing today for what's going to happen. So that's a great point, Bobby. I, I've actually in, had the time to recently go look at even the Social Security actuarial tables. And it was interesting for me to talk with my son, who's 22, who was born in 1997, 
when you look at their predictions of how many people that were born in 1997 will make it to 65 um, as a healthy adult, it's only 64%. That's a shocking statistic, and it's something that we never talk about. We don't talk about what does every adult need to do and prepare and have in place because the likelihood that between the age of becoming an adult and by the time we reach 65, we're going to need someone that's going to have to step in and help us financially, medically, in some form. And most people don't have powers of attorney in place. Most people live their lives on their phone or on their computer. And when someone does need to step in and help, there's a huge roadblock because there's a screensaver on their phone or their computer and you can't get to any of their passcodes. I think there's a huge discussion that we need to have just as a society as when you turn 18 and you are an adult, what do you need to do to actually manage and be prepared for whatever life may, may bring. And unfortunately, at the present time, as, as you mentioned, um, the, our next generation, our, our children and our grandchildren, at this point, the way things look, are, they have a shorter lifespan than the generations before. Up until now, it's been increasing. Um, and now it, 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 that's reversing. And part of it, at least, is this huge number of dementias worldwide. And as we mentioned before, it's not just one disease, it's several diseases. So even if there's research and there's treatment for one form, the others are still going to be rampant and and need a great deal of care. So every single day, what you do to support these caregivers and at least this financial aspect, and probably with others, you can't help it when you're talking to people, share some of the information that you, you gained as a caregiver is so very important. Yeah, and I mean, I think your point is a good one because, I mean, I'm, I wish more employee assistant programs would build in more caregiving classes and courses and resources because, I mean, we see the statistics. We know 30% of the workforce is actually an informal caregiver providing this care. Um, And most employers really aren't dealing with it. So I think a lot of it is just a general education. We don't know one, what our own statistics are, and we don't realize that if we don't prepare, someone won't be able to help us if we need it. And then the generation above us, you know, how do we care for a parent when the crisis hits? Absolutely. Um, and, and another area that I really try hard to reach out to is, is employers to let them know um, there are things that they can do for their employees that don't necessarily cost a lot of money, but maybe having a lunchtime caregiver support group or you know increasing flex time, those kind of things. And one of the discussions they had said, we need to tie it to finance. Um, how do they keep good people when they're when they have to care for a family member? So that whole thing comes into the discussion as well. Yeah, and that's I mean that's how I ended up doing this job is I was working in corporate America, um, had a great career, and but I was raising kids and I had two parents that happened to have a health issue, um, and I just felt like I was failing at everything. So I left my job and said I need to roll out of this and do something different because I just I couldn't sustain it anymore. You know, it's it's interesting what you said a moment ago, uh, well, what you both said a moment ago, that, you know, trying to get these into the employee assistance programs. And I think, look how long it took daycare to become part of the 
conversation, and hopefully it won't take as many decades for daycare uh, in, the, in the workforce as it does for the uh, caregiver support in the workforce. One can only hope, but... I think once it begins to affect middle management and above personally, things will change. Well, and I guess the one thing we may find from this is because we're realizing with COVID and everyone working from home, people are getting a personal view of what people are dealing with, right? So you read a lot of stories about all the kids coming into conversations and, and on web calls and interrupting. But I think I'm assuming that people are also going to see a lot of parents that are living with their adult children coming in and interrupting or them having to leave suddenly because there is a crisis you need to deal with. So maybe part of it is just being able to see all of us as a human and understanding what we, what we're living with outside of the workforce. And maybe that will be the silver lining to COVID-19. Absolutely. And hopefully it'll get, like you said, family members to understand what it's like to, to live with somebody with dementia, but give them an opportunity to take some of those, uh, not necessarily direct care activities off the shoulders of the caregiver while they're in there. Okay, uh, I, I have a question. So somebody uh, comes to you to look at working with mom and dad or mom or dad to take care of their day-to-day uh, money management. And do you find that there's uh, pushback or discussion or disagreement with other family members of, of actually doing that? So the family dynamics do unfold, and I see a lot of different behaviors within a family. Um, so one mm-hmm. of the things that, have, that helps us is when we go in, our client is actually mom or dad. So we work with mom and dad and say, you know what, we're going to help you with this. We can report to your power of attorney. We can provide reports to the family. Um, and for many families, having an external third party that doesn't have, I'm not related, and you're paying for the service, helps everyone calm down. Because I'm a neutral party, I don't have a special interest. My only concern is to help mom or dad. So I have mom or dad's trust, or mom and dad sometimes. Um, and we can share that information with the kids if mom and dad give us the permission to do so. So a lot of it is with the daily money management is we take a lot of those familiar fights out and arguments because we're letting mom or dad lead. And if mom and dad can't lead, then there's usually a power of attorney in place that can offer some guidance or a trustee. Um, And so we work within the, the legal framework that we're given. Interesting. So I wonder if there's some kind of pushback, maybe more, if, you were, if we're dealing with a spouse, say, for instance, it's my husband or my wife that um, is in this position, and I've always been the one to take care of the finances, and now I can't do it anymore, but I don't want to let him do it. Right. So usually um, those situations are um, the wife, whoever, it depends. Sometimes it's the husband, sometimes it's the wife. They didn't manage before, and so they actually are typically struggling to take over the finances because spouse never explained how they set things up. And things that seem totally clear to us, like I set it up this way, these are how all my accounts link, 
they don't make sense to the spouse and they were never explained. That's part of our kind of divide and conquer household partnerships that many of us have in our marriages. We never talk about those things because they seem mundane, but it's usually really difficult for the spouse to step in when someone else, when their spouse has been managing the money. So we actually help kind of do forensic accounting and talk through it. And so we'll work with both of them. So usually it's a conversation where we're just a neutral third party, like, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. What did you do with your long-term care insurance? What account does it come out of? If they can't remember, we can help find it and we can help their spouse feel more comfortable understanding the finances. So usually it isn't as much navigating. It's just a positive conversation that we can coach through it. So when, when, when you're doing that and you're going in to a new client, how does, um, or even does investments Mm -hmm. play into the mix where I have this much in investment because you're not financial advisors. Correct. And we are not um, financial advisors. We are not CPAs. I'm not an estate lawyer, but I know a lot to know when to bring those professionals in. Um, My dream team is actually a client that has an aging life care manager that manages health, that has a financial advisor that manages the finances, um, a tax accountant. So we can like look at different things that might be impacting the taxes. Um, so, and they already have estate plans in place. So that is actually a team of people that needs to help work with someone. And there are several financial advisors in the, in probably in every area that are very attuned to how do we help manage and do life care affordability planning. Um, we actually um, recommend some of the people in my support group to, to deal with um, a local elder law attorney. Um, and I wonder if maybe we could connect the two of you. I don't know if you're working with him, with them or not. It's called Legacy Elder Law, and it's out of Leesburg. Um, he actually has experience both as a caregiver and is really good with working with um, families where maybe the person with dementia is a little suspicious about what people are trying to do with their money and, you know, kind of explain to them the advantage of putting certain things in place. Yes. I mean, I'd love that introduction. I, and I have several I've worked with and, um, and we know who's to dementia because and I think that's what's interesting is I usually look for an elder care attorney versus just a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm more attuned to the nuances of, of planning for the rest of someone's life. Now, let's say uh, I just don't want to deal with it anymore. I can, even though neither Bobby or I have dementia, uh, we can still come to you to do, to work with the daily money management. So there's, um, a variety of daily money managers that have different practices. So, I mean, there's high net worth individuals that just don't want to manage their money or pay their bills. Um, I have clients that just, they're traveling and someone needs to mind the house, the bills while they're gone. Ah. So there's a wide variety of people. It's really people that are too busy or overwhelmed with managing their finances. Um, I do have special appreciation and um, affinity toward individuals where there's dementia and cognitive impairment since I've dealt with that because that really is more of a, um, a specialized practice than just regular daily money management where we're helping someone pay their bills. 
So tell us about your, your workbook. Yes. Oh, so um, actually the first thing I did when I was stepping in to help my mom and dad was create my own binder system of where's their money. So my mom and dad both had still had businesses running. So my dad had a consulting practice. My mom was an antique dealer. Um, they bought into a continuing care community in 1999. So they had a place in the, in the community, but it was more their vacation home and they still had a townhouse. So I had a lot of stuff that I was trying to manage and I was going on their healthcare visits. That's how things, that's how I really started to give them help with, was to go to their different medical appointments and support them. And so it was just too in, too much information for me to manage. And I created this binder. I am one of four siblings. I'm the baby of the family. So typically I'm not the normal caregiver. It should have been an older sibling. <laughs> I don't live here. So. so it was me. And I wanted to make sure that if something happened to me or when I wanted to take a vacation and, and my siblings were awesome, they would come in and help support mom and dad when I was gone, I could just turn over this book to them. So I was still at work at this point and people just knew I had this book and were starting to have issues themselves and said, you know what? I do not know, like, I don't have that system. I'd love to have that system you have. Have you ever thought of, you know, recreating it or do you have a template I could use to create it? So um, that's actually what I built, like, before I left my business is I, I built a whole business plan about how do you create an organizational system? I met with hundreds of estate lawyers, financial planners, and insurance professionals to find out what is all the information that you need. And in my caregiving journey, I kept adding to that workbook. Um, And so once I got a business plan together, I did a business plan competition. AARP Foundation awarded it an older adult innovation. Um, And so that was really how I got launched into daily money management was I started doing this toolkit for people and helping them organize their finances. And so that's really what it's meant to be. It's just a a workbook to walk people through collecting all the important information that someone would need for you as a caregiver. But what happened to the first year of business is the majority of people buying it were um, both working. They were professionals with families of their own and they were using it to manage their own households. So it was just, it was a really interesting thing as I developed it for caregivers but the majority of the clients that use the tools are working adults with families that just have too much information. And we know we have too much information. So they're using it to write everything down and have a a roadmap to their information. Well, how handy it will be should this situation arise where they need somebody to take care of them. And that's all part of that prepare to care thing. So I think it's great that, and I, unfortunately, I think, one of the reasons why the caregivers don't use it is they don't know they should. I think in general, most people, we were told for so many years, don't write down your passcodes. And I know that. So you had a lucky situation in using a power of attorney. I was named as power of attorney and still had Wells Fargo, um, some real fidelity, really big institutions tell me we won't accept your power of attorney if it's more than two or five years old. Exactly. They don't like it when adult children walk in with powers of attorney to the bank and try to get access to mom and dad's money. It's funny now that I do this as a professional, I don't get any pushback. I walk in, I'm like, it's my job. I'm named as power of attorney. I'm not related. And they easily give me access to these people's accounts with their power of attorney, but they just really don't like it when children do it. 
Absolutely, because a lot of times children don't understand that that, that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want with mom and dad's money. Um, you know, I've had people say, can I sell her house? Well, it's her house. And what are you going to do with that money? So absolutely. And also people don't understand that they can, re excuse me, <coughs> they can rescind that power of attorney on a whim. So it, well, it worked for us. It definitely won't work for many, many people. Yeah, it's, it is a difficult thing. So that's, I don't want him to tell everyone, go get them. But make sure you give it to the person and make sure that if when you need it, you're going to the bank with them, making sure they're set up with power of attorney. And it's interesting to me how many family members really don't even know how it works. Exactly. I had a client recently, the bank added her as a joint account holder, not power of attorney. And when I saw the banking statement, I said, you know what, you need to go back and you need to have them correct this because you're not a joint account holder, you're power of attorney. And they should not even list you as a joint account holder. That's an, that's an interesting comment. Uh, what's the difference of whether I'm on a joint owner of my dad's checking account, which was the case with us, or I have a power of attorney and his checking account is his checking account? Well, you had both. Right. I had both, but I don't understand why one and not the other or one over the other. Yeah, that's a great question, basically Mike. my question. Yeah. So um, what's interesting is, so hopefully my parents actually added me to one of their accounts. So that made it easy for me to navigate when all these power of attorney issues came up. Um, but what it means is if you add me as a joint account holder, half the money is mine. So when that individual predeceases me, all of that money is mine because I'm a joint account holder. If someone sues me, then someone's going to assume that's my money. And so that could be part of a lawsuit, not a huge probability of those things. But that's what joint account holder means is it's, it's viewed as my money. So power of attorney is not my money. They know that I'm stepping in and financially and helping make choices for them and I can sign checks for them, but it's protected from lawsuits. Um, it can be rescinded. And it does have certain rights around it and abilities that a joint account holder. So they're, they're two different things. So the one thing for my, this client was worried about is um, her brother doesn't pay all of his bills and she didn't want her credit to be impacted. <laughs> so in her case, she was more concerned about his credit scores impacting her credit scores as a joint account holder. Um, but so there's lots of things between those two instances um, and I would say in general, it's better to just be a power of attorney, um, but it would be nice to have one account that is set up with, as a joint account holder, it can be a small one that can be funded. So that's what I do with some families is I'll recommend set up a joint account that you have, give your power of attorney online access. So if they need to move money and fund this other account, if the powers of attorney are getting into trouble. Um, you can help with those things. So I don't know if I just got way too complicated with that answer. No, not at all. No, actually, it was it was very informative and kind of reinforces something that I did right, <laughs> if you will. Uh, my parents lived in Pittsburgh. We live here in Virginia. And we went and we got, when my mom passed away, her taken off the checking account and me put on. But we moved that money 
most of that money to an account here. And I kept that open because we had to pay uh, some bills like the electric bill and, and close out of, of different things in Pittsburgh. So I kept that account open and funded it so that I could pay that. But once all that was done, and it was about six months later, I closed out the account mm -hmm. because it didn't need it anymore. But it's so much easier having a local account right there to pay the local, the, the local things. Uh, but yeah, I had, I, it, we had the joint account. But once that nuance went away, the account went by the wayside and everything was here. Yeah, and and I kind of I think that point in what Bobby brought up earlier too, it's it's somewhat of the it would be great if there was employee assistance programs that offered more classes or even you know different webinars that both of us have done because you don't know what you don't know. You intuitively did that and it worked right. out really well and it's a really smart tactic. But most people are all we're all trying to learn why we were doing it. So I think that's why we go out and we advocate. And we do these talks and we do these classes because we know how difficult it was when we were walking this journey to understand all these things. So I do a ton of classes on these things. You do a ton of it on the caregiving. And I know, like, looking back, I wish I had pulled in a lot more resources on my journey so I could have been the daughter and not been just the, the health caregiver and managing all these things um, during my journey, I wish I had more daughter time than I did healthcare advocate and DMM, you know, daily money manager for my parents. I wish the part that I missed. That's an excellent point. The more you prepare, the more time you have to be the family member. I think that's a great point to uh, wrap things up with, that spending more time being the daughter, the son, the spouse as opposed to the traffic cop, if you will, of directing traffic this way or that way. It's one of the things one of the people in my caregiver support group talked about yesterday. Wish I had come into your group a lot sooner um, because they don't know what they don't know. Um, and this is a perfect example of it. Thank you so much, Kay, for agreeing to be here with us. And I know that our listeners learned a lot, and so did I. Me too. Thank you so much, Kay. It was an absolute joy. Welcome. Glad to be here. So, wow. A lot of um, interesting items. Absolutely. Um, and we've already talked about this, but my, I think my biggest takeaway, the biggest value other than the financial aspect is be prepared so you can just have that personal relationship when it becomes so important to you. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And... Um, I, I found it very interesting, the joint account versus the power of attorney on a checkbook, that that was kind of an aha moment for me. Yes, absolutely. But one of the things that really made me think is she mentioned that people hire her because they're out doing a lot of traveling, and then she manages the paying the bills, um, the mortgage, the electric bill, and so on, while people are out gallivanting. And I thought, wow, that's wonderful that there's a service like that out there. I never thought of that. No. And it, when we're able to get out and about again, maybe we'll be calling. Once we're off a timeout. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> wow. You can find out more about Kay and links to Memory Bank and her blog on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. 
And I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.